0: Our second scripture reading this morning is the familiar story of the wise men traveling to find the Christ child. Let us listen for and hear God's holy word in a new way or in a new light. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who's been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it has been written by the prophet in you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you. until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their their own country by another road." Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the words spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Amen. I'm going to start off today's sermon with a little bit of a Bible lesson. I don't know that there will be a pop quiz at the end of the service, but that all depends on how well you each pay attention. So listen up. The book of Isaiah, scholars believe, is really three different books written by three different authors at three different times, all hundreds of years apart. This theory comes from a lot of evidence found in the three sections of the book itself. And here's a quick Cliff Notes style breakdown. The author of 1st Isaiah wrote most of chapters 1 through 39 and is believed to be the prophet for whom the entire book is named. His influence was so great that he had disciples who carried on his prophetic ministry after his death. This led to what some scholars called an Isaiah school that eventually produced 2nd Isaiah, which are chapters 40 through 55, written sometime in the 6th century B.C. And 3rd Isaiah, chapters 56-66 through is thought to have been written in the 5th century or or possibly even later. The passage we just heard Ruthie read is from Isaiah chapter 60, or 3rd Isaiah. And it's one of the traditional passages for Epiphany. If we look at the chapter just before, Isaiah 59, it ends with a bold promise. God will come to Zion as redeemer scholars believe that the year is 538 BC the first wave of exiles have returned to Zion to Jerusalem from their forced deportation to Babylon the temple will be rebuilt the nation will be reestablished and those who've been forced from their homeland will return at least That's the promise of 2nd Isaiah, that God will once again dwell with the people of Israel and and will restore the glory of the former days. The problem is, though, this isn't happening. By 538 BC, the political scene is gridlocked by partisan politics and disagreements. The economy is in shambles. The predicted wave of exiles returning from Babylon turns out to be more like a trickle. And people are beginning to express doubt about whether they and God can pull this thing off. Any of this sound familiar? Whatever silver lining there might be is completely obscured by the dark clouds of uncertainty. And so the prophet speaks again. This time with more beautiful language meant to calm fears. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the people. But the Lord will arise upon you and God's glory will appear over you. The light breaks into the darkness and God enters into the brokenness of human suffering. This is a thread that runs through all three authors' interpretations of the book of Isaiah. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, 1st Isaiah writes. I will turn the darkness before them into light, promises 2nd Isaiah. And now 3rd Isaiah carries on the theme. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. It's no wonder then that Matthew picks up elements of this passage to tell about the visit of the Magi to the Christ child. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who's been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. Nations shall come to your light, Isaiah says, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord." In the midst of darkness and despair and uncertainty, a child in a manger in Bethlehem brings the promise of light. The truth is that we don't know, as Meredith said, whether the Magi found the infant Jesus in that stable in Bethlehem. For all we know, it could have been days or months or even years before later, before they finally discover what they're searching for. We don't know how many of them there really were. We don't know their nationality or their ethnicity or their religion. We've filled in some of the details in our imaginations making them astrologers or Persian philosophers or three kings from the Orient. But really, we know very little except that having seen the Christ child, they were changed. And they went home by another way. In a sense, that's where we find ourselves this first Sunday of the new year. We've lingered at the manger for the last couple of weeks, but this week reality hit. And it's back to school, back to work, back to responsibility. Speaking about this Sunday, Peter Gomes, who's the preacher at Harvard, once said, it's very difficult to tear ourselves away from Bethlehem. And we get that, don't we? He goes on to say, there's a time to lay down one's cares and duties and run to Bethlehem and the manger, a time to follow the star, a time to flee for refuge from the troubles of the world. There's also a time to return, to begin where we left off. We've seen God and survived to tell the tale. What we don't realize is that our faces shine with the encounter. We bear the mark of the encounter forever, marveling in the darkest nights of the soul at the wondrous star-filled night. One of my favorite Christmas moments is at the end of the candlelight service on Christmas Eve when each person in the sanctuary lights a small candle and then passes the light Down the pew to the person sitting next to them. Meredith and the choir and I have the best seats in the house. We get to sit there and watch as the dark sanctuary fills with the most beautiful light. Up here in the chancel, we can see something that most of you can't. Each face is shining. The face of every man, every woman, every child is suddenly illuminated they're liter- they literally shine. And it's such a picture, a sanctuary full of beautiful, shining faces. The Bible says that's what happens when people encounter God. Their faces shine. When Moses met God on Mount Sinai and came down, he frightened the Israelites because his face was shining. He didn't even know it, but his encounter with God made his face shine. Thomas Merton, a Benedictine monk and an incredible spiritual writer, had the same revelation walking around downtown Louisville, Kentucky in 1958. He wrote in his journal the next day, At the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the immense joy of being human. And what more glorious destiny is there, since the Word was made flesh and became, too, a member of Of the human race. Thank God. Thank God. I have the immense joy of being a member of a race in which God became incarnate. And if only everyone could realize this. But it cannot be explained. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. That's what Epiphany is all about. The word means to manifest, to show. When the Magi went to visit the Christ child, they may have been drawn by by the shining of a star. But I think they left with their own faces shining. I think they left reflecting the glory of God. You'll find that idea throughout the Old and New Testaments. From the priestly blessing of Numbers to the Psalms and on into Paul's letters. The faithful see the radiance of God's face, and in its light, they too shine. We all know people who seem to just reflect God's light. We know when we've been in their presence. It's personal, but there's also a communal aspect to it as well. Because when we shine God's light, things happen. When we shine God's light, the world is changed. The author Joyce Rupp says, it's a gift to know people who are faithful, people whose inner strength urges them to share their love generously, even when they pay a price to do so. Their lives tell us that faithfulness is possible, although it's rarely easy. Faithful people reflect God's faithfulness. There's a communal aspect. To shining God's light. When we reflect God's glory. The world is changed. Little by little. Bit by bit. And we find it in this meal as well. We come to the table. We come face to face with God. With our gracious host. And as we do. We are all changed. Little by little. Bit by bit. We come to the table And we find what we need to nourish and sustain us, little by bit, little, bit by bit, to do God's work. And then we go out into the world and change the world, little by little, bit by bit. There's a story I read several years ago in Sports Illustrated by a sports columnist that I love to read named Rick Riley. He wrote about Faith Christian School in Grapevine, Texas. It's a small private school that was established about 20 years ago to provide a quality education in a Christian environment dedicated to excellence in academics, athletics, and the arts. A couple of decades later, Faith has over 800 students and a multi-million dollar annual budget and a state-of-the-art campus on 16 and a half acres of prime real estate in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Like the rest of the city of Grapevine, the students at Faith Christian School are predominantly white, they're wealthy, and they're well-connected. Up on the Texas-Oklahoma border, 57 miles and half a universe away, is Gainesville Gainesville State School. The only way to gain admission to this school is by court order. Gainesville State School is a 35-acre fenced maximum security juvenile correction facility for males 12 to 19 years old. Entering students on average are three years below grade level in reading and four years below grade level in math. Many have dropped out of school entirely and most never returned to school after their release. And so it's a study in contrast, Riley writes, when Faith Christian and Gaines State met in early November for the last football game of their season's. Faith came in 7 and 2 and Gainesville was 0 and 8 having scored only 2 touchdowns all year. Faith had 70 members, team had 70 team members, 11 coaches and the latest equipment involved parents and over 400 fans in the bleachers. Gainesville showed up with 20 fans, most of them faculty members, cheering on a team of 14 players whose families had disowned each of them. After convictions for drugs, assault and robbery, and were, they were wearing seven-year-old shoulder pads and ancient helmets. But faith Christian coach Chris Hogan wanted something more. He wanted his school to find a way to show support to the Gainesville State players. So Hogan emailed the parents of his players before the game requesting that they form a spirit line for their opponents. Then even asked some of them to sit in the Gainesville State stands and to cheer the Gainesville players as if they were their own team. Here's the message I want you to send, Hogan wrote. You are just as valuable as any other person on planet Earth. Hogan said he wanted to make sure the kids knew that there were more people on their side than just the faculty at Gainesville State School. So when the visiting Gainesville team, all 14 of them, ripped through the paper sign that read, Gainesville State, Go Tornadoes, they found themselves sprinting through a tunnel of 300 cheering fans. The Faith Christian School supporters began to make their way to the bleachers, but half went to the home side, half, maybe more, went to the visitor side and stood to cheer Gainesville as they took the field to start the game. The next thing you know, the Gainesville team was turning around on their bench to see something they had never seen before. Hundreds of fans and actual cheerleaders. The The Grapevine JV squad was cheering for them. Let's get a drive going, a faith father yelled from atop the bleachers. Come on guys, let's go. It was that way all night, with faith parents encouraging players that they didn't even know to tackle their own sons, and teachers and administrators rooting for a team playing against their students. I thought maybe the crowd was confused, one of the Gainesville linemen said. I said, what? Why are they cheering for us? For one night, for one game, the 14 Gainesville State players felt like any other high school football team. In the end, they lost 33 to 14 but they scored two touchdowns, as many as they had scored the entire season. And when they came off the field with their fans from Faith Christian School cheering for them, they held their index fingers up in the air. They doused their coach with a bath from the Gatorade cooler. They might not have been number one, but they sure felt like it. After the game, both teams gathered in the middle of the field. Isaiah, the Gainesville quarterback, surprised everyone by asking to lead the prayer. We had no idea what the kid was going to say, said Coach Hogan. But Isaiah said, Lord, I don't know how this happened, so I don't know how to say thank you. But I never would have known there were so many people in the world that cared about us. After the post-game meal, the Gainesville team was escorted back to the parking lot in groups of five, each accompanied by a guard in handcuffs. And as they got on the bus, each boy was handed a bag of goodies, homemade cookies, a Bible, and a handwritten letter from a faith player. Mike Williams, the Gainesville coach, found Chris Hogan, the faith coach, after the game. He grabbed him by the shoulders and said, you'll never know what your people did for these kids tonight. You'll never, ever know. As the bus pulled away into the Texas night, all the Gainesville players crossed the aisle to fill every available spot at the windows facing the faith Christian fans. They pressed their hands to the glass and smiled and waved at these people they had never met before. Coach Williams said that his players were one step from heaven. Can you imagine how their faces must have shown? faithful people reflect God's faithfulness, little by little, bit by bit. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will never overcome it. Amen.